Rebecca, when did you realize that you are in fact successful? I think that's a really great question, Marina. I um, I didn't really think I was successful for most of my career. I, I thought I was lucky and I thought I had a really, really good team. And then after I'd been working about 35 years, I sat down and I looked at how many years I'd been on a sales quotient. And of my 35 years of work, I'd been on a sales quota for 28 of those years. And I'd always beaten my sales quota by a big margin every time. And I thought to myself, okay, that can't just be luck and it can't mm -hmm. just be a good team. I must actually also be good at what I do. So I'd say about 35 years into my career. I can definitely say that by all standards, you are mega successful and so and so inspirational. So delighted to have you here today. Um, is success important to you? So um, I have, I've always said I'm not particularly competitive with other people, but I've always been competitive with myself. I've always wanted to know how far could I go? What? could I do? What could I achieve? And there have been a couple of instances in my career where people have said to me, oh, we're not sure that you can do this, or you may not reach that level. And I thought, you know what? I think perhaps I could. And so, um, yes, yes, I've always, I've always wanted to be the best I possibly can. And does success and happiness, do you think they're linked? That's a great question. I I don't really know whether success and happiness are linked. I think you I, I see a lot of people you would think are successful and I don't think they're particularly happy. Um but from a personal point of view, I think being optimistic is more important. If you're if you're naturally optimistic, and I am, I think you're naturally likely to make the best of any situation you find yourself in. And so it doesn't matter what stage you're at, you can be happy with where you are. Thank you. If we could go back to the beginning uh, to see where and how it all started, uh, because you didn't, uh, you didn't study IT or technology, you read English, and then uh, you went on to do master's in science. So when did you meet technology? How did it happen? So I was born and brought up in Basingstoke, and I went through the um, state school system. Both my parents were civil servants, but both worked in the public sector. And um, my dad was, was a physicist, and he was particularly interested in computers. And he had the really, really early home computers. The minute that they came out, he had one. So I, right from the time that personal computers had been around, I'd been used to seeing them at home and, and assuming that it was fine, that, you know, it was normal to have a computer at home. It wasn't until, until a lot later that I realized that not everybody had a computer at home. I was always musical. And I do think there's a correlation between music and technology. Quite often people who are musical are also logical and interested in patterns and the way that things fit together. And I took, I, 
I had three grade eights by the time I was 16. I was musical and I really enjoyed musical music. I really enjoyed music. And I enjoyed the discipline of practice. So um, I think the combination of having that, the music background and the discipline of practice and my dad being interested in computers meant that it was, it was a kind of logical place for me to go. However, what happened was when I was about 17, I got a holiday job with the Automobile Association who, who were headquartered in Basingstoke. And they were just putting in a huge, brand new computer system for their membership, membership services. And I happened, just by chance, to join the team that was training the people to put the information into the computer system. And I loved it. I loved it from the minute... I got going. I thought this was really interesting. I wasn't that interested in how the computers worked, but I was really interested in, so what can you do with this? What information are you collecting and how are you going to use it and how is it going to change the business? I thought that was really interesting. And I went back. I was so lucky. I went back to the Automobile Association more or less every holiday for the next four years. And so I was able to keep going back to that team and do more work with them. So, you know... It started quite early for me. Thank you. Um, but there is still a big journey between uh, mini computers at home and interest uh, during, a, uh, during a summer job to being a senior executive in IBM and one of a very few women who were able to achieve that. How did that happen? My first degree was in English language and literature. But while I was at Oxford reading for that, I won a scholarship to go to America from the Rotary Club. And I was already interested in broadcasting and broadcast services. And so I did a Master of Science in broadcasting, but I specialized in cable television and satellite services. And the reason I did that was because I was really interested in that new technology and where it might go. And, you know, frankly, I was hoping cable TV would take off in the UK in the way it had in America. And I'd be there at the start and it would be a great career and I'd earn lots of money. You know, mm -hmm. didn't work out that way because cable TV went in a different direction. But I did get some basic grounding in technology and technology services. And very, very interested in what you can do with technology. I've never been a really technical person. I've done some very basic programming, but I'm not a technical person. And I suppose, you know, a point that it's really important to make is that you can be hugely successful in the IT industry without being technical because there are so many different jobs and roles for people to do. And that's probably one of the most important messages I want to get across, especially for women, women who are interested in the digital world, interested in transformation, interested in change and how change happens. Technology is a wonderful, wonderful place to, to work. So when I finished my Master of Science, I worked in the cable TV industry for a little while. And then a bit later on, I joined IBM as a trainee sales rep. And that was my, you know, my grounding in IT was in sales, selling technology and selling services. I, I sold um, consultancy services more or less from the time that IBM were selling such things. And uh, and I loved it. You know, I loved working with, with customers. I loved finding out what their challenges were, 
what they wanted to do with their business, how technology might be able to help them. Being in that translator role between the business requirements and the, the technologists, so being in that translator role, bridge role, I always found very interesting. It was only years later I discovered that there's actually a proper job called mm-hmm. business analysis. And, I, you know, I didn't know that then, but um, but that's kind of what I, I suppose, what I, I was doing in those early days. It's very interesting that uh, you said you don't need to be an IT technician or IT specialist to be successful in IT. I think it's a wide misconception that many people many people have. Um, but having said that, do you think still uh, men are better suited with technology? No, I don't. Interesting. I, I think that there are um, wide varieties of people of all genders. And some of them are good at what people normally think of as technology, which is the coding piece. You know, typically when people think about working in IT, they think it's about software development. Is it not? No, well, it is. I mean, software development is really important, but it's only one part of a very, very broad church. And there are men and there are women who are absolutely fantastic at software development. There may be more men than women. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm really genuinely not sure about that. Um, I think that perhaps younger men and boys are more attracted to the software development side of things when they're at school, and that might lead them more into the in, into the software development later. But if you consider a, a computer system, the first thing you have to do is the business analysis. You then have to design the system. Designing a computer system isn't just about the software, it's also the hardware and the network and linking it to all of the other computer systems that it has to talk to. You then have to build, write the software. You then have to test. Is it working? Does it actually do what the business needs it to do? You then have to deliver it, which means putting all the bits together. You know, like lots and lots and lots of Lego bricks, you have to fit it all together. And this isn't always just about software. This is about lots of different things. You then have to run the system or operate it. And again, this is, you know, this is not just about making sure the software is working, but the hardware, the network, all the data going in, the data coming out, you know, how, how it's all working. And you have to monitor and you have to assure. And so, and then, by the way, you're probably iterating and doing most of that in, a, in an iterative way. So there's lots of different aspects to designing, building, operating, and running a computer system, which are uh, which run alongside the actual software development. And then you have the other roles, which are important, just as important: the project or program management, the budgeting, who's paying for what, how is it working, are people running to budget, the. Um, the outcomes. So this is really important for any computer program, project or program. Do you know what outcomes you want to achieve? And do you know that you're achieving them? Are you measuring them? You don't need to be a software developer to be able to do that. You have to have great communications. You have to tell people that you're doing this, that you're you know, putting out a new, co- a new system. You have to train people how to use it. So you need a whole communications um 
team. And then you need really importantly, you need stakeholders and they may be customers or senior people in the organization or people in other organizations. And all of those stakeholders and the stakeholder management is really important too. So I feel like I've said quite a lot on this, but I do think it's really important mm -hmm. to, to try to give a picture of the whole range of possibilities. Possibly a tricky question. I have a five-year-old daughter. Uh, how would you suggest I pitch IT, technology and science to her? So, I try, I, I try not to generalize too much, but it's a fact that there are some typical behaviors of girls and boys and um, typically, but not always, but typically, boys tend to be more confident uh, in the classroom, around, particularly around the STEM subjects. And, and if computers are still shared, boys tend to be more confident about taking over the computer um, and, and maybe kind of taking the lead on the activities. I think that happens less these days because most people have their own. But the other thing, which is a generic, is that generically boys tend to be um, happier in an abstract world. I know from my own experience that I can I can do numbers; it's not a problem. But I'd rather have a real number than an X, Y, Z, or C. And I think girls quite often are like that too. And so, the more practical the computer exercises are. And the more relevant to to girls, the more likely they are to have an interest in it. But the other thing I would say is it you know links back to what I said earlier about the whole range of different roles. There's an awful lot of skills that both girls and boys need to be successful in IT. And they're not about technology, they're about communications and teamwork and understanding the importance of bringing together diverse views, different points of view, different ways of working. This is almost as important as, you know, being able to code the software. So with your daughters, I think it's really important to encourage them to, to learn those communication skills, to be confident, and wherever possible, look, at, look on your local websites and see whether there are classes or clubs that your girls can go along to maybe without boys in the room so that they can get to learn together. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that one should never mix with boys. It's just that in certain circumstances, I think girls do, they learn, they learn more confidently. And so, yeah, that, that, that's what I would say is concentrate on the basic skills, see if there are any coding clubs, and if they have any talent at all, get them on a musical instrument. That's a great grounding for, you know, any child, actually. But music is, is hugely important. Learning to play an instrument, you learn to read music, you're learning another language, you learn about logic, you don't even know that you're learning about logic, and you learn to work with other people. This is fascinating. So I never made a connection between musical instrument and technology. Uh, thank you. Thank I will just advice. say I will just say one other thing about musical instruments is um, 
the greatest joy I've had, one of the greatest joys I've had in my life is playing musical instruments with other people. Um, when you're looking at the musical instruments for your child to learn, pick one that you need a lot of. And I play the violin, and you always need lots and lots and lots of violin. You generally only need one or two oboes, or maybe one or two clarinets. So just take that into consideration when you're choosing instruments. She plays the guitar, by the way. She chose, chose it herself, loves it. Um, I would like to pick up on confidence. You mentioned that when comparing boys and girls. Um, also, I know that you've said previously, I have uh, came across it in one, one of your earlier interviews, that confidence is not in women's DNA. Do you, do you still think that? And do you think um, lack of confidence affects women in the workplace and their success in the workplace? And also, what can be done about it? What can women, young girls, young women, can do to improve that confidence if it's not in their DNA? I, uh, I think confidence in women is, is, is a challenge. Um, I, don't, I don't know why it's the case, but I know, I know women, many women suffer from imposter syndrome and feel like, you know, they can't do much or downplay their skills and capabilities um, and don't sell themselves in, in the way that men tend to. And, you know, again, I, I, I reiterate, there are, I do talk about generics and I know there are always exceptions to the rule. But typically, I've, I've found through my whole career that women, you know, women don't apply for jobs unless they really feel they can do the whole job, uh, whereas men are more likely to apply if they think they can do it, not if they, even if they don't have all of the experience. Women don't tend to hear compliments or internalize good news. They tend to kind of bang it away. Um, and they worry more about making mistakes. And, you know, particularly in end-of-year appraisals, a woman will go into, often, a woman will go into an end-of-year appraisal regarding it like an exam exercise. And she'll write out all her answers and provide all her evidence and be prepared to answer on every small detail. Typically, men regard an end-of-year proposal, and, sorry, typically, men regard an end-of-year appraisal as a selling option opportunity and they prepare a sales document and they go and sell themselves and everything they've done and how wonderful they are and unless your appraiser or job interviewer know that men and women act differently in these ways then you know women may not be recognized for everything that they do the other thing that women don't tend to do is negotiate their salaries mm -hmm. or pay increases um and Typically, men are much more confident about doing that. Again, I know for myself, when I joined Deloitte in 2006, I joined as one of 12 new partners, and I was the only woman. And in our induction, the day that we, we started with the firm, it became apparent that I was the only one of the 12 that hadn't asked for anything. I was so grateful. <laughs> I was so grateful that I'd been offered a job. It didn't cross my mind to negotiate 
anything. And the 11 men did. Of course. Every single one of the 11 men had, had asked for something. And they were all completely en- amazed mm. at me. And they would say, well, surely, I mean, surely you asked for something, you know, anything. <laughs> and I, I said no. And they obviously thought I was very, very strange. And I think all of this links back to confidence. Um, and, and so what can you do? What can you do? You can be very sensitive as a manager. As a manager of women, particularly women coming through maybe the first three, five, seven years of work, be really conscious of the fact they are likely to act differently than men in the workplace. Take that into consideration. Sit them down and make sure that they are hearing good news. Be gentle about development points because women will obsess about the things that they think they're not doing well or the things that they're being criticized for and if you treat if you give constructive criticism to men and women equally the women will really worry about it and the men will go well i had a great conversation i've got nothing to do (laughs) so i think i think in those early years line management and mentoring and coaching it's just critical to make sure that you're understanding the capabilities of the, of the women and understanding how to build that confidence. Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned Deloitte. So after, uh, you have been uh, extremely successful in IBM, uh, which is a corporate environment. Then you moved to Deloitte, which is also corporate, but it's a partnership structure, so completely different dynamic and politics, perhaps. Uh, And then also you worked extensively with and for public sector. So how was it? Is it different? Or how was it different? Do you have a favorite? Do you have a preference? And uh, what do you need to be successful in all of them? How did you do it? So... um... Corporates and partnerships are hugely different, unbelievably different. And I found the transition, personally, I found the transition very difficult. It took me about two years after I joined Deloitte to work out how how the partnership worked. Um, Partly because in a corporate, you're much more likely to be, you know, uh, a cog in a wheel. And you're told what to do and which direction to go. And off you go. And obviously Mm -hmm. that you have some autonomy and you can make decisions and so forth. But at the end of the day, you're going in the direction that the corporation wants you to go in. And it's quite hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Partnerships, much flatter organisations, oftentimes, although although partners work together brilliantly well, oftentimes they're also running a, a kind of almost like a small business of their own. And it's really important that partners in in a partnership are able to both sell and deliver. So they need to have something, you know, the thing that they that they that they stand for, their specialty, their technical expertise. They need to be really credible in that area, and their clients need to want to work with them, and you know, want to buy their services. So, yes, corporate partnership, extremely different. Public sector, um, so public sector has been my client for more than 20 years. I had a short secondment for about three months in the cabinet office during that time. 
now I've retired from Deloitte, I am working for the Department for Education and I'm the independent chair of their Skills Reform Board, which is a huge reform program of technical and vocational education and lifelong learning um, across the whole country and, and massively exciting and I love it. So um, with the public sector, most of the time that I've been working with the public sector, it has been, how can I help you achieve the things that you want to achieve? And if you can't do it on your own, and sometimes there are skills and capabilities that the public sector shouldn't have, couldn't have, maybe only need for one program, so not worth building that skill base. So you buy them in, you have people to help you, and then you move those people on. Uh, and I think I've got quite good at um, understanding how best the private sector can support the public sector to deliver the big, complicated digital transformation programs that they need that they need to deliver. Um, I have a personal view that public and private sectors should always work together collaboratively. I am a massive, massively collaborative person. I happen to think no organisation will ever have all the skills it needs. So you bring the best of different organisations together to get to where you want to get to. Um, I don't think I don't think that it's harder or easier in the private sector than the public sector, but I do think that um, you need various things on both sides to be successful. So. Whether you're in the private or public sector, a corporate or a partnership, you need to build your track record of achievement. You need to have stakeholders. You need people in your organisation who believe in you, who know you, who understand what you want to do and are going to help you get there. And that's not necessarily your direct line manager. That can be somebody in another part of the organisation. You have to create great teams. This has been one of the great joys of my career. I love creating teams and I've always looked for people in my teams who are going to be better than me and who are going to have skills that complement my weaknesses. Building great teams is really important. You, and when you're doing that, you need diversity. So you need to have differences of outlook, opinion, background, ethnicity, religion, age. It's really important to bring pools of people together to, if you want to do anything new. And then in both private and public, you have to take risks. You have to try new things. If you don't try new things, you won't ever get anywhere. You won't ever make real change. But of course, if you take risks and try new things, sometimes you're going to fail. And that's fine. And it's important. Fail. Have you had any failures? Because sounds like absolutely not. You are, you are so successful. Uh, and if you did, how do you deal with fail failure? I've had lots of failures in my career. Um, and some of them I'm not very proud of. Some of them I'm proud of because I failed because I was trying to do something new and difficult and it didn't work. And I learned from that experience and went on and did something else that was new and difficult and it did work. But I've had, I have had failures and 
my worst failures have been about my personality and not necessarily understanding well enough how I impact other people and how I react to other people. I have a strong personality. I talk a lot. I'm extremely enthusiastic. And I'm not that interested in the minutiae. You know, I love a big picture, the vision, <laughs> the creative piece. Um, and I need somebody else who's going to help me sweep up and make sure that everything gets dotted and crossed and so forth. But I have, I have had, um, I have found it difficult to not take some remarks personally. When people have not meant to make a personal remark, I can take it personally and then react. Um, and that kind of reaction is not helpful. It's not helpful. So what can you do? I've had the benefit of some fantastic coaches in my career. And I don't think you ever grow out. It doesn't matter how seen you are. You never grow out of needing or benefiting from a really good coach. I've had some amazing coaches. And they have really helped me to understand myself, my reaction to other people, and how I'm, I'm interacting. One of the things somebody said to me many years ago is, if you want to know what your weaknesses are, and I recognize weaknesses are a bit different from failures, but mm -hmm. it, you know, one often leads to the other. Look at your school report from when you were around 10 or 11 years old. Oftentimes at the end, it says areas where you could do better. Mindset does not always listen and does not always respect her elders and betters. So the one thing I would say is everybody has weaknesses. Weaknesses can lead to failures and you never, ever grow out of needing a coach. Thank you. Very, very wise tools here. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, I would like to move to... Uh, slightly more fun part of the interview which I called a blitz question so I would ask you a question and then you uh, don't don't think uh, don't think much but before we do that I have one last serious question um, and it is political so feel free to uh, to not to answer if you don't want to usually we stay away from politics but I just could not resist because we have a new prime minister we have a new cabinet which is one day old so with your wealth of experience and knowledge of public sector which advice would you give them uh, in terms of uh, technology how much technology should be on their agenda and uh, in which form? Well, I would hesitate to give any advice to any government. However, I cannot resist this amazing opportunity to do a shout out for the skills reform program. If we are going to grow the economy, we need people with high quality technical education who can fuel our growth sectors. And the growth sectors include things like green energy and nuclear, pharmaceuticals, electric vehicles, creative industries, fintech. All those sectors need people. And the reform program for further, further education and lifelong learning is the vehicle for creating a pipeline of amazing talent for this country going forward. So I would love all of the ministers in the new cabinet to support the skills reform program. 
But I would also say, and perhaps, you know, you might say, well, she would say this, but I would say, please deliver broadband to all the rural areas of the country. Living in the in the country as I do um, down in Somerset, I know how much we struggle not having broadband um, right across the country. So please let's let's finish that. And remember, collaboration is key. This is my mantra. So let's get the private sector working with the public sector to, to deliver the best possible outcomes for the UK. Thank you, Rebecca. I will make sure that a uh, copy of this podcast is being delivered to 10 Downing Street for <laughs> after, after we finish. Thank you. So let's move to a bit more fun, hopefully, uh, part. I will ask you a few <coughs> questions and you can uh, you can just, just answer. Uh, your life has been um, linked with technology and IT for, uh, for many decades. How present is technology in your day-to-day life? Do you live in a super smart home? Do you have uh, fancy monitoring devices? Are you following apps, social media trends? Well, I probably have a different view of my technology uh, and use of technology than anybody else in my family. My sons and husband probably laugh. But we do, you know, I do, I, I, I have wearable technology um, and, I, and I'm an avid user of, of apps on my phone. We have Alexa, et cetera, et cetera, and streaming devices. However, what I will say is most of the technology uh, problems or issues that I get involved with are to help my 88-year-old mother with her technology. So, you know, she has an iPad, an iPhone, an Android tablet, a laptop. She has Netflix and she has all the streaming services. And I do get involved with helping her with some of those um, from time to time, although she is amazing. Thank you. If you had a book written about you, what would you like to be the name of it? Collaborate. Love it. What is the best compliment you have ever gotten? I'm kind. How nice. That's the favorite one of my five-year-old of the two. Uh, do you prefer paper or audiobooks? Ooh, now, it depends. If I'm on holiday, take my Kindle, anytime. Not audiobook, though. If I'm not on holiday, I like the old-fashioned paper version. And would you recommend a book which had a big impact on you? Oh, there have been so many. I did read English as my first degree and I adore reading and I read fiction. And I would say different books have had different impacts on me at different times of my life. So when I was a young teenager, I first read Elizabeth Gouge's Little White Horse and I thought it was wonderful and it's been a go-to comfort book for me um, more or less ever since. Um, oh, I don't know. I loved Angela, Angelou Mayo. Can't say that. I love, I love the Cage Bird Sings. Um, the Bone People. I mean, there have been so many over the years. I think most recently, the, the book that has had the most profound impact on me has been American Dirt, which is about uh, the journey of refugees into America. Fantastic book. Thank you. What is your favourite unimportant thing to do? 
Um, well, every day I do Wordle and I do four variations. So that's probably at the moment my favourite unimportant thing. Fair enough. And what is your next challenge for the next 10, 20, 30 years? From a professional point of view, I'm looking for another challenge. I absolutely adore the work I'm doing with the Department for Education on the Skills Reform Programme. I think I could do another role. And if there were one, I would be really happy to discuss it. Are we allowed to air that? <laughs> um, but also, you know, I have two wonderful sons and a beautiful granddaughter and a husband, and as I mentioned earlier, an 88-year-old mother, and those people are really important to me. My family, my community, my friends. Um, and I think, you know, it, whatever I can do for them as well over the next few years, very important. Um, as we are wrapping up, uh, could I ask, maybe you have been asked that before, uh, can women have it all? Yes. Well, I think women can have it all, but they have to negotiate the deal. So you can have it all, but there are trade-offs. And so I don't think you can be 100% the best at being a mother, being a businesswoman, running a home. You know, you can't do all of those things equally well. So you have to make some decisions. What do you want to spend your time doing? what you want other people to help you with. I was hugely fortunate in my career in that my husband, who was, was a teacher, gave up work when our sons were one and three. And he brought them up and he did a, a fantastic job, fantastic job bringing them up. And it meant that I could go and have my career. So I was, I was really lucky. And I, and I talked to him about it as well. So he was under no illusions. You know, when our children were one and three, we went to live in America. When they were about six and eight, I had a job in Paris. And each time, you know, I talked to him about what the those jobs would mean and made sure that he was comfortable and happy with that. Thank you. Uh, as we will be drawing this to a close, is there anything... I should have asked you, and I haven't. Yes. You haven't asked me about the 12 years I spent running a roller skating club in Bognor Regis. <laughs> I don't know why that slipped your mind. But I will just say, actually, it was one of the best things I ever did. It was a wonderful, it is still, in fact, a wonderful club. Um, running down there on a Saturday night with maybe up to 200 people every week from two and a half to 80, roller skating, having fun together, learning how to, learning how to do new, new things uh, and having a great time socially. From my personal point of view, it taught me so much about volunteering. Volunteering is so important. You learn such a lot, even if you don't think it's got anything to do with your working life. Everything you learn, it all adds to life's rich tapestry. Do you still roller skate? Haven't roller skated for a little while. I do a lot of cycling. Maybe you'll have to uh, take it on again with your granddaughter. Oh, yes, maybe I will. 
Maybe I'll ask my husband to do that. <laughs> or maybe this could be the next challenge. <laughs> or maybe it could, yeah. And the last question, uh, who do you think would be a great guest on this podcast um, from your network, from the people that you know? I have a wonderful friend called Pam Garside, and she has recently been announced as the first female chair of the um, private equity investment group in health technology in Cambridge. And she's an amazing, awesome person, really, really uh, passionate about healthcare uh, and about technology and about new new companies. And I think she, she'd be great. We would be honored to, to have her. Rebecca, thank you so, so much for your time, for the insights, for the inspiration. Thank you. It was been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you.